You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. Former White House Health Policy Advisor Dr. Zeke Emanuel joined the Washington Post to discuss the latest developments in creating a coronavirus vaccine and more. Let's listen. It gives me great pleasure now to welcome Dr. Zeke Emanuel. He is a physician. He's a health reform advocate, and he is the vice provost at the University of Pennsylvania, and he joined us here today from his living room, as we all are. Dr. Emanuel, you've said that the U.S. won't return to normal for 12 to 18 months. What do those intervening months look like to you? Well, unfortunately, they're quite hard months. Uh, We're going to have to maintain a lot of the physical distancing, uh, staying six feet apart. Uh, getting into our pods, uh, wearing face masks in public, continuing our hand washing. And Mm -hmm. we're going to slowly try to expand uh, the number of businesses that are open um, and where people can engage uh, while keeping other parts of the economy closed, parts where there's large groups of people that cannot social distance, parts that include uh, nursing homes and uh, long-term care facilities where uh, particularly vulnerable parts of the population are present. Um, so I think we I do we are- that slow opening, uh, mm-hmm. as it were, in phases uh, over time, and we have to be prepared to reimpose uh, more restrictive measures uh, when we see some flare-ups, uh, outbreaks, uh, resurgences, whatever you want to call them. You heard Dr. Gottlieb talking about um, his ideas for when a vaccine may be ready. When do you think we might have one, and how would you think it would be deployed in a way that can can actually affect a population? Uh, well, uh, Scott, I thought, uh, was uh, optimistic. Um, I always like to note that uh, almost every scholarly uh, item you read uh, says, if everything goes perfectly, and uh, those people who've been engaged in uh, vaccine production in the past knows that it's rare that everything goes perfectly. Um, I would also point out that um, it's basic that we have, uh, you you might say, four different kinds of candidates that were vaccines that we're trying. Um, uh, We're trying some of these new mRNA DNA vaccines. We're trying uh, viral vectors. So we take a cold virus like adenovirus and we put the RNA of the coronavirus in to generate an immune response. We then have inactivated um, or live attenuated uh, uh, virus uh, particles. And then we have these sort of artificial viruses that have the spike protein on them. Um, some of those have are tried and true, like the inactivated viruses vaccines, but they take many years to develop. They have a, you know, they tend to have a lot of serious side effects. Some of those we've never developed a viral vaccine from mRNA or DNA. And so it's really, they're easy to get into the clinic, but they're much more of a shot in the dark. And then mm-hmm. the final point is, even if we prove you know, I thought Dr. Gottlieb was a little optimistic that by the end of the year, we'll have evidence. We'll be going into a big phase three in the fall. I think that might be premature. But say we are in, say, October, November, December, sometime like that, starting big phase threes, um, you still have to find out how many people get infected, and that takes time. Um, and then you're going to have the whole production. Yes, we right. are going to ramp up production. Some of these are easier to produce than others. Not all of them can be wildly produced to a billion doses. And then the distribution is also going to be a problem. All of it sounds, you know, we could have it in 12 months. Yes, I think we could have it in 12 months. Um, 
but I don't think that means all of us in the country are going to have it in 12 months. So I'm, I'm looking at the fall 2021, uh, maybe uh, uh, January 2022. I think that's when we're very likely to have it, and it's going to be widely distributed, or very likely. That's, if everything goes well, that's when we could have it. Um, yeah, the uh, and that's with it. It's a long haul. And I think, uh, I, you know, I just get upset when our leadership doesn't prep people in the way that, you know, Winston Churchill prepped people for the long haul of the battle with Germany. And right. I think being honest with people, we, it, the, the, you know, when I'm on an airplane, I prefer a pilot to be honest with me about what the delays are. And I think it, it's somewhat the same here. I can plan better. And it also means that we'll have public policies that can plan better for the, for the time period. Instead of, you know, a rapid, we're going to give everyone $1,200. That's really important. But so, that's not going to carry you for 18 months. So we need a planned uh, subsidy situation that will carry people for 18 months. So let me ask you a little question about the um, clinical trials going on. We heard some good news out of NIH with remdesivir. It's not a curative uh, drug. But we have a reader question from Jasmine Smith in Virginia who says, how long before we learn the results of other clinical trials that are going on? Can you give us a little bit of a perspective there on what's happening in the science and what we can expect to see in the next... It's a really good question. So basically, when I think of the therapeutics, there are sort of two kinds of therapeutics that you have. One is we take drugs off the shelf that we think might work, and we try them in uh, COVID-19. Mm -hmm. um, I'm skeptical that we're going to have much big impact on that. Um, I think remdesivir, you know, it's a marginal uh, impact. It didn't improve uh, uh, survival. What it did is got people out of the hospital uh, four days faster. That's hardly a home run. Um, uh, it, you know, qualifies for a, a little improvement and encouragement and proof of principle that we can impact, but hardly a very big uh, change. Um, most of the off-the-shelf stuff doesn't typically work in new scenarios. There are some notable cases. Uh, thalidomide, I'm an oncologist, thalidomide was developed in the 60s for pregnancy, but it, it really works well for a type of blood cancer, multiple myeloma. We know Viagra was a... Problems with pregnant women, right? Thalidomide? Yeah. Yeah. It was originally developed for pregnant women for nausea and vomiting. It wasn't, you know, caused serious birth defects, but now it works right. for cancer. Okay. We have Viagra that was originally developed for blood pressure and now works for erectile dysfunction. Right. There are a few other a few other cases. But in general, that doesn't work too well. And by the way, besides remdesivir, we've tried a number of other drugs that have failed, including hydroxychloroquine. Um, what we really need are drugs designed for COVID-19 uh, disease, and those are going to take longer because you're going to have to do safety studies on them. Then you're mm -hmm. going to have to uh, assess them in the clinic. Um, uh, you know, trying them out with monkeys and seeing that you know they really do prevent monkeys uh, do prevent monkeys from getting sick from COVID is going to be a it's going to give us early indications whether these drugs can be effective. But then we still have to do safety trials and the right. trials in humans to make sure that it does help uh, people. And I think you know that's going to take probably maybe not quite as long as a vaccine, but the idea that by January we're definitely going to have a therapeutic is somewhat doubtful. Um, the other thing I would mention, uh, uh, Francis, is, mm -hmm. you know, for a lot of these viruses like HIV or hepatitis C, we need more than one drug. You know, I'm an oncologist, typically in cancer, you don't get away with one drug, you need a drug regimen that has multiple drugs in it. 
it's very likely that for COVID-19, the same will be true. So it won't just be one therapeutic that we'll get. We'll probably need a couple of therapeutics used in conjunction. So let me take you now to a question about our healthcare system. We spend, there's no shortage of money spent on healthcare in this country, and yet we've ended up with this disaster. Where do we need to be reinvesting resources? Where do we need to rebalance the system to try to make sure when we see another pandemic, as we almost assuredly will in coming years, we don't end up with this kind of crippling lockdown? Uh, really good point. So uh, let's differentiate two parts. One is the health system. That is, you go to the doctor, you get go to the hospital, you get diagnostic tests. Um, that has been overwhelmed because we had this big surge uh, in, you know, at the emergency room with a very infectious disease. Um, mm -hmm. But what we really needed was a public health response early on. And I think what Dr. Gottlieb uh, talked about was the failure to activate a public health response in January or February at the latest. And I think that's a different item. That's not so much your individual doctor and the hospital that is putting in place some of these public health measures that we've now gotten used to, the physical distancing measures, the abandoning the large groups. So and public health is chronically underfunded in this country, right? It's always been the sort of the place you could take money away from. In 2008, I know a lot of the public health departments lost huge amounts of money. Do we need to revamp entirely and centralize public health across the country, or what's your prognosis there? Well, a lot of the local pub and state public health agencies were funded through CDC. And as you're, you're correct, uh, it is chronically underfunded. It's in the low billions of dollars in terms of total funding to the CDC, and it should be much, much more, um, and we should redo their uh, program. I will say, uh, to be very, very clear about it, um, you know, uh, beginning probably in 2005 with Secretary Levitt, to his credit, he came in, recognized that pandemic was a real threat, commissioned some pandemic preparedness work. Um, and that's been a poor step to help all along. Uh, when we were in the Obama administration, we did focus on pandemic preparedness, in part because we had H1N1 right at the start of the administration, and it alerted us to the problem. We then had MERS, um, and we did learn that we needed to prepare things, and Ebola happened as well. Um, but that message did not get carried over into the current administration. And as had been noted early in this process, they were proposing 19% cuts to the CDC just when we were hitting a pandemic. That seems like not rational policy making with, with an agency whose budget was already pretty tiny. And I might say that, you know, Secretary Levitt did take the initiative in 2005 to get the uh, pandemic preparedness at the top of the agenda because SARS had just happened and it again alerted him to the threat of a serious novel virus pandemic. Um, I have and one so, question that I'm dying to ask you and that is about the okay. politicization of public health. Is there any way out of that? Is this a, a new phenomenon um, and is it peculiar to an election year where there's you know points are being scored? Is the, what What's the future of public health given the politicization right now? Um, Let's hope it's not politicized because it really isn't a political matter. It is a matter of science, as we can see from the influence of the public health measures that have really brought the death rate down in New York and brought the hospital demand down in New York. They work, and we need more of them, and we need more campaigns. Part of the problem is that public health 
uh, has gotten politicized because it deals with gun violence, it deals with smoking and vaping, and these things have become unfortunately tied up with the culture wars rather than just focusing on the science um, and the dangers that they pose to people's health, longevity, uh, morbidity. Um, I am hoping that we can you know, just look at the data and design a policies that effectively implement the data. Um, you know, that's true in some other countries, and they have done better on some of these very important measures. Um, it also happens to overlap with taxation. For example, one of the best ways we know of decreasing smoking is just raising taxes. You are advising Vice President Biden, I believe. What would be some of the top things you would recommend if he were to become president? Well, we're going to have to focus on the production and distribution of a vaccine. Uh, as I mentioned at the top of uh, our interview, even if we get a vaccine quickly, getting enough of it for the whole country, for the whole world, and getting enough of it out there and in people's arms uh, is going to be a, a huge challenge and a huge logistics challenge. And I think that is day one. That's probably, you know, whether we have the vaccine ready at that moment, coordinating that effort and making sure it happens is going to be a major challenge. And I think, at least on COVID, that's going to be important. I think re-examining the balance between healthcare spending and public health spending is another major area that we really need to look at. And figuring out how to restructure our healthcare system so we don't have this problem again is also going to be uh, the third topic that would have to be looked at by a new healthcare administration. So an entire restructuring of the way health is delivered across the country? Uh, I think a, a restructuring of how we pay for it, making sure we have universal coverage is going to be vitally important. If anything's been shown by this, you can't leave a large portion of the population out. Um, and then we do need to think about how to shift and make sure doctors don't become bankrupt. They do continue with their telemedicine um, and restructuring hospitals so right. they're not so reliant on uh, uh, elective surgery for their money. And providing better health care is more of a focus. Well, thank you very much. That's all that we have time for this afternoon. I feel as if we could have continued both of these conversations for much longer. Thank you, Scott Gottlieb. Thank, thank you, Manuel. It was a pleasure to have you. Thanks for listening. To hear more interviews from this series and other Washington Post Live programs, visit us at WashingtonPostLive.com.